Hello, this is Brad Schwartz, professor and chairman of Southern Illinois University School of Medicine. On behalf of Richard Wolf Medical, the Endourological Society, and the Journal of Endourology, I would like to welcome you to the latest release in our podcast series. Each month, we will be presenting a current events topic of interest to our listeners. This broadcast, I'm happy to introduce Dr. Tim Large, Assistant Professor of Urology at Indiana University School of Medicine in Indianapolis, Indiana. He has significant expertise in the area of stone disease, especially imaging of stones and the clinical relevance of these measurements. Today, we'll be speaking about how do we image and measure renal stones. Tim, uh, really appreciate it. Appreciate your expertise. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, look forward to a, a, a good discussion. Thanks for having me. So, Tim, you know, forever in endourology, I mean, I've been doing this now for 30 years or so, we've always measured stones in the greatest linear distance. And there's been a lot of push, maybe a little bit of groundswell for moving towards a more volumetric measurement to standardize stone treatments and, and what we do. Can you just comment on uh, what some of your folks have discovered and what you've um, what you've uh, what research you've come up with at your institution regarding uh, uh, greatest length versus volume versus uh, other ways of measuring stones? I think this is a very pertinent question for the day that we're currently at. I think what's prompting a discussion around stone volume, stone surface area, and stone diameter is that there are multiple platforms of treating stones that are emerging. We've got retrograde surgeons that are dusting with high-powered lasers. We've got percutaneous old-school 30 French sheets with various lithotripters. And then we've got mini PCNL, ultra-mini and super-micro-mini PCNL that are using a combination of both percutaneous but then laser technology. And I think the question starting to come of the approach may be a surgeon preference, the outcomes may be the same, but there's a clear difference or a perception of difference between percutaneous versus retrograde, the different technologies. And a lot of that has been sort of because traditionally there's been recommendations based on greatest linear dimension on what approach you should come at a stone, what technology you should use. And that's sort of the reason why I think we've been sort of pushed now to look at stone volume, because as all of us know, even, you know, even general urologists, you know, not even, not, not people that just do stones day in, day out, the greatest linear dimension could vastly underestimate a stone burden um, or greatly vastly overestimate. And so we've all been there where we've sat and said, you, you know, you've looked at a scan and it's, you know, a centimeter and it's greatest diameter, but it's, four millimeters in one and three in the other. And that might be best served with a retrograde approach or a mini PCNL or a, um, but, but maybe not a maximal 30 French percutaneous surgery. Um, and so I think you're gonna see as these different approaches and technologies get put head to head, I don't think it's a fair comparison to, to start listing greatest linear dimension. And so, I think the push will be, and you're starting to see these, there's more and more head-to-head -head trials coming out where greatest stone volume um, is, is being subjected. I think the greatest limitation though that we're gonna face here is how cumbersome is it to quantify stone volume? 
And then also what is the surgeon's perception? You know, if we say 125 millimeters cubed versus 512 millimeters cubed versus a thousand millimeters cubed um, of stone burden, or what does that mean? Does a surgeon register that? I mean, that's essentially a five, eight and a 10 millimeter stone in diameter. Those register really quick for us as surgeons, but we need to reset our perception of what is stone volume? What does that mean as far as stone? What is stone volume? Do you get a sense of what that means? That's great. I, I agree. I mean, I, there are so, uh, several articles over the years that talk about volume, and I think it's just a question of retraining the mind that, uh, you know, uh, volumetric terms need to be substituted for linear. And if we start that at, at some point, there'll be a transition and a, maybe some growing pains and some confusion, but I think it probably is where we really need to go. So, so kind of on the coattails of that, if, if you're contemplating stone treatment, if you have a patient who you've already deemed a good candidate for a stone treatment. Uh, what do you choose for your pre-op imaging? And, and uh, kind of just talk us through your thought process of pine, prone, uh, do you do CT recons? Do you do just CT of the abdomen, just CT of the pelvis? And uh, I guess the, the last on that particular topic is would you operate on an ultrasound only or do you really rely on your, your cross-sectional imaging? The first thing is, is that this is pretty guideline-based. Any percutaneous procedure, you have to get a CAT scan. You have to, if they come in with an ultrasound, it's not just for stone burden, it's stone location. You got to think about your access point and you need that cross-sectional imaging to look at surrounding structures for your access. Um, as far as prone versus supine, I don't, I, you know, the pediatric patients that I take care of, they're almost always prone. Um, and it's just the institutional preference and the adults are most commonly supine and it doesn't really uh, phase me. I don't have a preference one way or another. I do know that obviously anatomy changes if you're a prone PCNL person, which I am, um, but we can normally adjust safely um, for that. I would say that as far as ultrasound only, there are cases, you know, I have recurrent stone formers and to minimize radiation, I'll sort of have an ultrasound KUB protocol in place and I'll certainly go off of some stones. Okay, rather than scan you, we'll just go up and clean you out. But I don't routinely trust uh, ultrasound. I know that the suggestion is that it's an intermediate between KUB and CT for identifying stones. But for me, I do rely on uh, CT. Now, again, I don't technically need a CT abdomen and pelvis, and I'll order low-dose CTs of just the renal system for stone burden if I'm planning to do retrograde ureteroscopy versus even a mini PCNL. So I do like it for stone quantification in my hands, again, where I sort of can go back and forth. And I've got an institution that supports a percutaneous approach very, very well. I think when you have don't have that team around you and you're sort of leaning more on just ultrasound versus, you know, I think maybe you could rely on less um, cross-sectional imaging. But for me, I, I do... I do rely a lot on CT. Okay, very good. Just to kind of dig a little deeper in those weeds, uh, what are your indications for functional radiography when treating stone disease, uh, MAG3, DMSA, DTPA, et cetera? The guidelines are pretty kind to us as clinicians. I mean, it, it basically suggests that you can obtain functional imaging, either DMSA or MAG3, if clinically significant um, renal loss is suspected in the kidney. 
And so what I sort of have fallen on, and again, every institution is different in your facility with PCNL comfort level and what your team is around you may change things. But at Indy, we're just very efficient at stone uh, treatment. And again, that's that's because of uh, an institution that's built on greats like Jim Lingaman. A- Amy Cranbeck was briefly here. Um, and these people sort of set up a, a wonderful system. And so because the morbidity associated with the PCNLs is quite low, and, and I always have a suspicion in a full staghorn XGP kidney, is that kidney really at its optimal situation? I'll actually really forego functional imaging on the front end. I'll have an honest conversation with the patient. I'll say, listen, this may take two, maybe three PCNLs to get you stone free. But um, un- and under the understanding that the recovery is pretty minimal when it's done very well at a high level. And so where I use it is on the back end. And, and where on the back end is typically in somebody that we've cleaned out. We have a nice post-op CT. And then we observe them somewhere around six to nine months. We'll re-image with another CT. And when there's new stone growth quite rapidly, then I'll really do a functional study and ask the question of, are we going to do this for the rest of your life because you grow stones so fast? Or is this kidney really a non-functional unit and are you better served with a nephrectomy? Um, but I'll almost always give it a shot. I, it's rare that I will push somebody to just go ahead with a, um, a nephrectomy up front, even with a functional study that arrives in my hands suggesting less than 15% function. I'll still give it a shot. Tim, when you know, you, you talk a lot about the guidelines, and I think we have to. I think they're there for a reason, and I think they uh, all the work was put into them for, for us to follow just makes good practice. But, you know, the, the guidelines for stone, they really have to probably be changed, and I think some do, things do need to be updated. So keeping that in mind, what, what do you uh, – how do you decide between, uh, you know, URS and, and PCNL? And, you know, we haven't said the four-letter word yet either, ESWL. I mean, I think – uh, for the purpose of a lot of our discussion, probably just limit it right now to URS and PCNL, understanding that there are some stones that are still completely relevant for ESWL. And there are some stones that are very, uh, probably more more uh, relevant and more uh, suited, uh, more better uh, suited for ESWL. But how do you decide between URS and PCNL since there are so many PCNL options? Uh, we now have several different lasers for URS. Uh, we have a, a couple of different sheaths that we can use that actually have, uh, you know, aspiration, vacuum, et cetera. Uh, so maybe forgetting the guidelines a little bit, maybe just give us your, you know, kind of two minute, three minute kind of uh, thought process on what your decision tree is for choosing those two treatment options. And Dr. Schwartz, you couldn't have hit it better. I don't want to seem at all like um, I don't uh, see a role for shockwave lithotripsy. I mean, it is a workhorse. I know our general urologists out there do a massive service to this greater community by picking the right stones, um, you know, upper, mid, pole, renal, pelvic, um, even ureteral stones, you know, within the size criteria, typically, you know, if you can keep it under a centimeter, around a centimeter, I mean, those patients are stent-free, they're happy, they don't need stage procedures when they have small ureters. And again, going back to some of my mentors, there was always this question of this um, retrograde ureteroscopy, dusting a stone, leaving a stent, not everyone leaves a stent versus a shockwave therapy where there's no stent. 
what is better and how do we measure that? And that's a great question to ask. But I certainly, while I don't do shockwave lithotripsy only because there's no requirements for residents to do shockwave lithotripsy anymore versus there are for them to do ureteroscopy and PCNL. So I funnel my practice into that. And then anyone who wants ESWL, I, I have some private partners, former residents that I refer to. So I definitely support that. So I, I want to make that you know, um, known. Then beyond that, your you know, again, just a great question is PCNL progresses and we see more and more of these smaller mini sheaths. Um, it becomes challenging if you're proficient and you can get into a kidney fast percutaneously. Um, with minimal trauma, minimal sticks, uh, minimal bleeding, you can really have some phenomenal outcomes, especially with lower pole stones. So I'll really flex on the guidelines even, and really, you know, eight millimeter lower pole stone, that can be treated pretty much any way you want to do it based on guidelines, but I'll almost always lean on an ultra mini or a mini PCNL because I can afford, I can do it efficiently, I can spare the patient a stent and do a totally tubeless procedure. And I don't see that that is causing any long-term renal damage. Now, you know, doing a 30 um, millimeter or, or a, a, a 10 millimeter, a 30 French a standard PCNL for a eight millimeter renal pelvic stone, I don't know that I would agree with that approach. I think that these days with retrograde technology, and as the, as the disposable units get more and more components to measure temperature and pressure and these lasers get more efficient, I do think it's a, appropriate to push the limits on even the guidelines and take on these stones that are two centimeters, renal pelvic soft, that powderize. I fully support that too. So I do think you hit it on the head at the beginning with you're going to see a, a, a revamping, I think, of these surgical guidelines because the technology has drastically changed in the last 10 years. I think even in the guidelines to come back all the way to what you said, I think they ought to take on the challenge of saying, let's create guidelines based on stone volume. Because the guidelines, and not to get too much, this is more for educational, but the guidelines dictate physician compensation and institutional compensation. And, you know, if the outcome of somebody who's proficient with ureteroscopy of a two centimeter stone is the same as somebody who's proficient with PCNL, you ought to suggest that compensation should be the equivalent and not different amongst those just based on historical um, uh, treatment modalities, so. Okay, uh, you know, the other advantage of doing some, uh, you know, the mini PCNLs for these lower pole stones, you, you know, if you do a, a PCNL and you're actually able to remove the fragments, in some respects, that may even be better than doing a ureteroscopy and dusting, not only from a stone-free standpoint, but also from the preservation of urethra and uh, distal and mid-ureter. So you completely avoid those by doing an anagrade procedure. Just, just food for thought for the listeners, but there are advantages of doing anagrade approaches for these really kind of medium to medium large stones of 8 to 12 millimeters, even though historically... They've all been treated with lithotripsy or ureteroscopy, but with miniaturization and removal, I think that there is clearly a role for uh, ureteral and urethral preservation, especially in males. Um, so you, uh, I've talked to you offline, Tim, a lot, and, and um, you, you seem to kind of like this uh, idea of intraoperative CT usage. It's, it seems like a great idea, and clearly it should lead to 
uh, increased stone free rates. Why don't you just talk to us about your experience, your opinion, your observation, and really logistically, how is it done? We actually have a O-arm uh, system that's used predominantly by the uh, neurosurgeons for their intraoperative cases. And there's different software packages. And to be honest, we don't even have the abdominal soft tissue software package for the O-arm. But again, when you have, when you're doing something percutaneous, I don't typically use it for ureteroscopic cases, just because I think you're sort of seeing enough. You're, there's no, there's no concern with typically bleeding. And, and, and when it's done correctly, you get a good piloscopy, but you know, percutaneously, it's really quite simple to bring in and the bone uh, software is good enough to pick up these stones. It adds no more than 10 minutes total. Um, it's draped and comes in when you say you're done. It doesn't work well with um, mini PCNL metal sheets because of the artifact. So again, if you're doing mini, you have to take that off and change it for a wire. But if you're using a Boston Bard Cook percutaneous access system that has a plastic base sheath, you get really good imaging and, and you can spare somebody a secondary PCNL. Where I typically use it is when I can see on fluoroscopy that there's clearly a stone there and it's frustrating me and I'm looking and I've tried to do a non-dilated puncture and I'm not getting anywhere. I'll often bring it in and verify, yeah, it is a stone. And then it's a decision point, you know, it depends where I'm at at the case to push forward and keep trying versus, okay, let's just decompress this kidney and, and I can counsel the patient right away and say, listen, we were in there three hours. We did a great job. This is a primary, but we're going to get a secondary PCNL. And it affords me the ability to, at this point, we're at about 50% outpatient PCNL. They can leave knowing that they're coming back, but knowing that they're safe versus keeping them until the morning just to get a CAT scan so we can counsel. So it's a nice adjunct. And, and at this point, again, with a robust team around you, it can be done very efficiently. And it adds no cost to the care either. It's funny you say that because about, uh, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago, we just got the OR in one of our hospitals. Before any neurosurgeon or orthopod got to use it, I was actually the very first person to ever <laughs> OR. And it was specifically for this type of case where we did a perk. And I just added just complete curiosity what it would look like. Yeah, and how it would work, and you know, I'm, at least for me, back in the early days, it was a little cumbersome, unfamiliarity with it. But clearly, I think if you use it and, and you can incorporate it well, I think you can probably utilize that in your practice. Yeah. Well, Doctor Large, I, I sincerely appreciate your expertise. Thank you very much for uh, providing this information for our listeners. And on behalf of the Endo Society and Wolf and uh, the Journal of Endo Urology, we uh, we thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. And if anybody wants to reach out with any clarifications, uh, my email is timlarge at iu.edu. That's pretty easy. I'm readily available. And I just want to thank you, Dr. Schwartz, again for hosting me. It's been a pleasure. On behalf of uh, Richard Wolf Medical, the Journal of Endourology and the Endourological Society, I thank you for listening today and hope you can tune into the next podcast. <laughs>